we go through difficult things in our lives and things that we sort of deem unfair, we have a tendency to kind of look around and begin to make comparisons, don't we? We begin to see and analyze and evaluate what's going on with us, and we begin to see others around us who are not experiencing the same things. And so because of that, we begin to question, why me, God? Why this? Why not them? I mean, what have I deserved, I mean, done to deserve this? Why, why is this happening to me? What, what sort of purpose and plan do you have? And, and why is this circumstance happening to me? It can happen at a traffic stop where we sort of look at our jalopy and look at someone else who's next to us with a nice car, and we go, why them and why not me? Or someone gets a promotion, why them and why not me? Why do I have to live this way in the home that I live in? And why do they get to live where they live? And we have a tendency as we begin to look around and evaluate our condition with human eyes and human perspectives to get a, a, a sort of a, a, a skewed view of where we are, especially when we begin to compare our lives based upon what is experienced by other people, where they are going and what's going in their lives and how God is working in their lives. And, and in those comparisons, we get all jumbled up and Simon Peter in our text today in John 21, just these few verses, 20 through 23, is very human at this point. He is very weak. He, he falls to the tendency and the temptation that we all have because, you see, Simon Peter has just gotten some bad news. We studied it last week where Jesus has told him, Simon Peter, you are going to die the most horrific death that is known to man in our day and time. You are going to be crucified on a cross. It was a horrific death. And Jesus predicts or prophesies or foretells Simon Peter's destiny. And Simon Peter is struggling with this. It's kind of like being in a, in, a, in a room and you're with a doctor and they have done multiple tests and they tell you, you have cancer. You've ever had a family member, if you've ever been in one of those consultations, you know the horror, you know the, the emotion, you know the, the numbness that happens when that diagnosis is given. And Jesus has just given a diagnosis, Simon Peter, you're not only going to die, you're going to die on a cross. And in his weakest moment, even though he, he had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, when Jesus breathed on him the Holy Spirit, he is, you can still be filled with the Holy Spirit and, and have the Holy Spirit and still be very human and very weak. That well, that's another study for another time. But he's, he has a moment in which he sort of steps back, kind of like Jesus in the garden, and says, Lord, can't this cup pass from me? Why me? What about John? What about him? And so Simon Peter helps us realize the travesty, the disaster that happens when we as brothers and sisters in Christ begin to see ourselves from a human perspective, not a divine perspective, and seeing that what we are experiencing is by and for the purpose and the plan and the glory of God. And, and he has a, a moment of, of, of relapse, so to speak, and he evaluates his condition and he is about to make a critical mistake, but Jesus in a loving manner is going to rebuke him and restore him and put him back on the right path. Isn't it great that Jesus does that when we do that as well and he will so don't fight it accept it and get back on track as quick as you can so that his 
His will can work through your life and you can bring glory to God. Combating comparisons, we do it every day in one form or another. And so how do we combat it? Let's take a look at the text and let's look at three things that are described in our verses today, beginning with verse 20. First of all, there was a compromising choice. There was a compromising choice. The passage begins by simply saying and stating Peter. Simon Peter is in a moment alone with Jesus. We saw him last Sunday when he and the disciples, after having gone on a fishing expedition that caught nothing, and Jesus told him, throw your nets on the other side, they do, and he dives in, Simon Peter does, and swims to shore, and is the first there, and, and the other disciples get there, and they have a fish fry right there on this, the beach, on the shore, it's an intimate time. It's a wonderful time of fellowship and reconnection. Jesus addresses Simon Peter and said, do you love me three times? And there's that dialogue between Jesus and Simon Peter. It's in front of the other disciples, and they hear this conversation. And Simon Peter has to admit in front of the others, I don't love you like I should. It's a confession to Jesus, but it's a public confession. And now it seems as if there has something that has changed in this exchange between Simon Peter and Jesus where many scholars believe, and I kind of agree with them, that there's a moment when Jesus gets up and Simon Peter gets up and they begin to make one of those shoreline walks. There's nothing like walking on the shore, is there, with the sea and, and the shells and, 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 and it's, it's, it's a beautiful scene and Jesus and Simon Peter are walking side by side along the beach. The waves are beating and seagulls are screaming and it's just a beautiful scene, and people out there enjoying themselves. And there's this moment, this one-on-one -on -one between Jesus and Simon Peter. But notice what happens. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against the, him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to, to Jesus, Lord, what about him? What about this man? And so we hear, we see in verse 20 where Simon Peter walking with Jesus sort of takes a different direction. He and Jesus are walking side by side, and the Bible says that Simon Peter, I don't know if he turned to the right or turned to the left or where Jesus was, but he turns and he notices that another disciple is following close behind, and it is none other than John. It's John, another disciple. G Jesus is walking with him, and they're having this intimate moment, and Simon Peter turns, and he looks at another disciple. And this is, I think, the beginning of the downfall and where he makes a mistake. He takes his eyes off of Jesus, and he puts them on another disciple. You can't compare yourself with another disciple. Each and every time we take our eyes off of Christ and begin to look at other disciples and compare their lives with our lives, we are on a slippery slope that ends in disaster every time. Don't look at your neighbor and compare yourself with them. But he turns and he, in the direction of, of John, and notice it says, whom Jesus loved following them. Now, it's, it's hard for us to understand the motive and, and the heart and the intent and the mind of Simon Peter during this encounter, but I think through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is recording for us not just what is happening, but I think he's sort of giving us, I believe, possibly, maybe, some insight in what's going on in Simon Peter's heart and his mind, what is going on there. 
For he says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. John loved Jesus, and he, like Simon Peter, was on his heels at any opportunity, chance he could get. And when John sees Simon Peter and Jesus walking away, he wants to be close to Jesus, and so he follows. But notice it says, Jesus loved Jesus. I wonder if there was any jealousy among the disciples. Didn't they argue several times about who was going to sit on the right side and the left side? And John is revealing himself because he never calls himself in his text by his name, but he's saying, I am the one you know, that Jesus loved, and, I, and I'm following. And there was a special relationship between John and Jesus. Simon Peter was a part of the inner, inner, inner circle, part of the ones who got special privileges with Jesus in certain experiences and to see certain things. But in the inner circle, I'm wondering if Simon Peter, when he sees John following quickly behind, in his heart of hearts begins to grow this jealousy in regard to his relationship with Jesus. And if you recall three times around the campfire last week, Jesus asked Simon Peter, do you love me? And three times he had to answer, I don't love you this much, I love you this much. And Jesus finally the third time said, you love me at least this much. He said, Jesus, you know all things, I love you this much. So he's admitting in public, I don't love you as I should. And now here's John following us who loves Jesus more than me. And does Jesus love him more than me? And I think sometimes when we make comparisons about what other people have and what they're not going through and we are, we ask ourselves the same question, don't we? Do you love me less than them? Because, Lord, if you love me the way that you love them, you wouldn't be putting me through this or they would be going through the same thing that I'm going through. And so we question the fact. Let me tell you something. Jesus has no favorites. And if you think you're one of his favorites, you need to get over yourself. He has no favorites. I know pastors who believe that they are God's favorite. Look how big my church is. It's bigger than yours, so I'm more favored by God. No. You can't measure God's love, God's favor, or God's blessing in your life based upon a human quantity or qualification. He loves no one more than he loves anyone else. For God so loved the world. For God so loved Charles Boswell more than he loved you. That he gave his one. No, he loves us all the same. And so this assumption, I think, on Simon Peter's part is, Jesus must love John more because I'm going to die this horrific death. How is John going to die? What's going to happen to him? Is it going to be as bad as me? And I think maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe when we go through hard times, we want other people to suffer too, don't we? Come on. Notice his regression then. He talks about a time and a moment in Luke chapter 13, verse 24 and 25, where they're back in the upper room, and there's this discussion after Jesus has washed their feet. Jesus says that somebody here is going to betray me. He doesn't identify who it is, 
And for just a brief moment, they're not sure who it is until Jesus then says, the one in whom I dip this bread into this cup and give it to him, he's the one who's going to betray me. For just a moment, they looked around going, who is it in the room? Until Jesus gave it to Judas, and then he said to Judas, go and do what you're going to do and do it quickly. And he got up and he went, and he did what he was told to do. But I wonder in, if you remember, we've been studying John 21, Jesus was around the campfire and Peter dived in and came to the shore, and we talked about when he came up to Jesus and he found Jesus on the shore with this coal and this, this fire and fish, did he reflect back upon the time when he had followed secretly Jesus, wound up in the court, and he was standing there and denied Jesus three times around the last campfire he was at? Do you think that was on his mind? I wonder if it was. I wonder if it was. Because I think sometimes when we make comparisons... We have a tendency to dig deep into our past and look at past mistakes and things that we've done and think the reason this is happening to me is because I'm being punished by God. Now, while God does discipline those whom he loves and those who are not his children, he doesn't discipline. I'm not not talking about discipline. But God's grace is more than sufficient to cover our sins. And I believe that Simon Peter constantly, continuously throughout his pilgrimage goes back in his heart and is recalling and remembering the three denials that he made to Jesus around that campfire in that courtyard. He was a coward. And he was having a hard time forgiving himself. I think that's why Paul tells us in Corinthians that Jesus made a special trip to visit Simon Peter by himself to bring him back into the fold. I think that's why we constantly see in John 21 Jesus pursuing Simon Peter is because Simon Peter is not only hard on everyone else, he's hard on himself as well. And I think many times Satan likes to keep our sins out in front of us, reminding us of our failures and our disappointments and our 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 denials so that in that he robs us of not only the joy of the Lord but the glory of the Lord and the purposes in which he, he wants to unveil in our lives. And then notice his confession. He looked at him and he called Jesus Lord. I believe this confession is a confession without genuine devotion. Because even though he calls him Lord and he desires to make him Lord, I wonder at this opportune moment right here, right now, in a moment of weakness, he's questioning, Lord, I know you're Lord of my life, but I don't like what you have prescribed for me. I want to take the driver's seat. I want to grab the steering wheel. I want to dictate and determine my will, not your will, because your will is headed toward a cross and suffering and death that is cruel and harsh. And, and, and just, to, have you ever not been there? Lord, you're Lord, but, but I don't want this part of my life. I want to direct my life and to take my life somewhere else because that is not a place I want to go. And while we in a place of worship or maybe on a seashore in the presence of Jesus, we call him Lord, deep down inside, we want to be Lord of our own lives to dictate and determine the future and the direction that is less painful or has less Hardship or less suffering than the one that he has planned for us, a, a plan that actually glorifies God more than our plan, which actually glorifies man and self rather than God. 
And so there's a confession without devotion, but there's a comparison that, that, that's a slippery slope. Lord, it is, who is it that is going to betray you, he says in verse 21. And when Peter said to him, he said to Jesus, go to the next slide, Lord, what about this man? What about this man? What about him? You have just told me, Jesus, that I'm about to, to die a horrific, horrible death on the cross. What about John? Now, John has not put Simon Peter up to this. And we know this by the text because he addresses Simon Peter specifically. Had John been a part of this coup to find out what was going to happen to him because in front of everyone, you know, he, he has been told what's going to happen to Simon Peter. Uh, he, he's like, well, hey, Peter, find out what's going to happen to me too. John's not, not, not doing that here. This is Peter all by himself evaluating his future and his suffering and the hardship that's going to come. He's not real happy about it. And he said, well, what about John? What, well, I know how I'm going to but why just me? Why not him? And, you know, I have told my children, I can't tell you how many times when they were younger, and you have probably said this very same thing, life is not fair. You ever said that? Have you ever had anybody got multiple children in your family? And there seems to be one you're telling them to do this and another to do that. And they're not happy with the chore they have. And they're being told to do this. And they're saying, but, but why don't I get to do that instead of this? I don't want to do that. I want to do this. And so that, or you'll tell them to do something. Well, that's not fair. Other children in another family are getting to do that. But you won't let me. That's not fair. And our standard answer is life's not fair. Come on, say it with me. Life's not fair. That's not good enough. Come on, say it like you mean it. Life's not fair. We have a tendency to look at our lives and in our childhood immature state, compare ourselves with others and say, God, that's not fair that this is happening to me and not to them. It's not fair. And yet, do we get to determine what is fair and what is unfair? Jesus has just told Simon Peter that this is going to happen to him in order to what? To bring glory to God and to advance the kingdom there's a purpose in it. It's not just some coincidental, by-the-way thing. It is very strategic and very intentional. And he does that, as we talked about last week, individually in each of our lives to bring about certain circumstances and situations and hardships and all of these things. He doesn't waste a single moment of your life for a specific purpose, not only to, to mold us and shape us and change us, but to bring glory to God. And in bringing glory to God, we advance the kingdom in the lives of others. And Simon Peter made a compromising choice. Number two, Jesus makes a corrective change. There's a course correction here. Notice the course correction in the next verse. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Interesting, he says, Jesus, Simon Peter, is having this interaction with Jesus. Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come. He reminds Simon Peter, you have called me Lord, but let me remind you, I am Lord. 
I am the divine son of God, and it is I who reigns and rules, and it is I who is sovereign, and it is me and me alone that dictates and determines your future and John's future. I want to remind you, John, who's in control. I am the Lord, and my will is going to be done. No one, the Bible said, can thwart the purposes of God. God is reigning and ruling on his throne. No matter how much chaos exists in our world, God still reigns, and he still rules. He is still sovereign and he's still in charge. I don't know about you, that brings me great comfort. We've had a country this week, Turkey, who's in turmoil. Who could have predicted this last Sunday? And last Sunday, we prayed over more global conflict and turmoil. It is chaos. And, and I'm convinced it's only going to get worse, not better. How do we walk through this turmoil, this chaotic world that is constantly changing and where danger is all around is because we know that God who is sovereign, Jesus who is Lord, is reigning and ruling on the throne. And if my life is in his hands, I don't need to worry because he is Lord and his will will be done. And whatever he brings into my life, Lord, that is your will. And I don't mean I'm going to do something stupid if I jump off the Empire State Building and say, well, it's Lord's will. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm saying we should walk around with a confidence and with the courage of knowing that Jesus and God, the Father, and God, the Son, and God, the Spirit, they are in charge, and they are in control. They are sovereign. And man can pretend to be in control, but no one can thwart the purposes of God. And that's what he's saying to Simon Peter. I'm in charge, dude. Let me remind you who's in charge. You know, sometimes we need to be reminded who's in charge. And then notice he says there's a rebuke. What's that to you? I almost titled this sermon, Nunya. That'd be a great title, wouldn't it? Nunya. Ain't none of your business. What happens to John is none of your business. Get your eyes, get your mind, get your thoughts, get your everything out of John's business. We need more of that today. Mind your own business. Shut up. Stop. What I do to John is none of your business. What I give to him is none of your business. What I bless him with is none of your business. How I take from him is none of your business. You need to look at yourself. Stop looking at others. He says, it is a rebuke. What's that to you, John? It's nothing to you. Stop worrying about your brother. Get your nose out of his business. Not only was it a rebuke, but it was a reversal. He said, what is that to you? It's none you. You follow me. You. He is turning it around and saying, John, I mean, Simon, Simon Peter, I want you to look in the mirror. It's all about you. It's not about John. You worry about you. You think about you. You concentrate on you. You don't concentrate on your brother. You focus on yourself. You have enough to say grace over and it's you that you need to pay attention to and how you live for me because as you follow me, there's a responsibility here, Simon Peter. You must obey me. Step where I tell you to step. Do what I tell you to do. Become what I want you to become. You follow me. Don't worry about John. You follow me. I thought about puzzles when I was thinking about this the other day. And uh, I've had children. I have eight, almost nine grandchildren. We have our ninth grandchild coming, and they're all under 10, so that makes me incredibly young. So just because I have nine grandchildren on the way doesn't mean I'm not an old guy. 
Ryan, where are you? You talked about, somebody was talking about how old I was up here. They're all under 10, so I'm still a young guy, okay? And we have, we have as our children are grandchildren, we give them what? Puzzles. And children's puzzles are what? They have really big pieces. And they're not very complicated. And if you've ever had a, a child or a grandchild and you've given them a puzzle, they want to do it over and over and over again. It's good to have children do puzzles. And then there are adult puzzles that my mother-in-law does. They're like two million pieces. And some of them are about this tall and, you know, this big. And they're, they're just insanely crazy to do. And you spend hours doing them. But pieces fit where they're supposed to fit. You can try to fit them and you can try to force them, but they don't fit there. The, the puzzle was designed by someone and was cut strategically where each particular piece has a place. And you must find out where that place is or the puzzle doesn't look like it was supposed to look when it was designed by its creator. God is our creator. He is the one who has designed the puzzle of your life. He knows where the pieces go, not you. And things happen into our lives for a specific purpose because God is putting the pieces of the puzzle together not only to weave in us a, a, a purpose and a plan individually, but a grander plan where he is, he is bringing glory to, to his son Jesus and he's advancing the kingdom. And he's telling Simon Peter here, you are putting the pieces of your life, trying to, in the wrong place. And I have a design. I have a purpose. I have a, a, a vision here of what I want to do and where I want to take you and what I want to do through you and how I'm going to glorify myself through you. And you must follow me. You have a responsibility to, to follow my design, to put the pieces of your life where I have dictated and determined they should be in advance of your will, Simon Peter, and obey me. And sometimes we all need a course correction. And then lastly, there's interesting, there's a careless conclusion that happens in this text. It's kind of a side thing, but it's worthy of our consideration here today. So notice in verse 23, our last verse. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Notice it says, so the saying I looked at that and I scratched my head. So the saying. Someone said something. You follow where I'm saying? Somebody said something. They don't. Uh, John, inspirational Holy Spirit, doesn't say to us, doesn't reveal to us who it was that began the untruth, but someone told an untruth to someone. Everybody has a friend that they confide in. And when they say something, don't tell anybody. Right? And then they have a friend who they're going to tell, and they'll say, don't tell anybody. And then that somebody has a best friend, and they tell somebody, before you know it, it begins to spread. But somebody told somebody this untruth, it's more than a rumor, or it's a rumor that has absolutely no basis for truth. It's a lie. It's untruth. Somebody spoke. And notice it spread abroad, everywhere, to everyone it began to move. How far did it move? Notice among the brothers. It seized control of the fellowship. 
It began to move throughout the whole community of faith, the whole church, the brothers and sisters began to share it. And I'm not sure where they shared it, maybe in a small group setting, maybe in a teaching setting, maybe in a sermon, but it became widely known that what Jesus said to, 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 to Simon Peter was that John was going to be alive when Christ returned. That means he's coming soon. There's hope. He's coming soon. And even though it may have been well-intended to communicate hope to people that Jesus was coming soon, hang on, hang in there, don't give up, it was still a lie. It was untruth. And it swayed the church, noted that his disciples, that this disciple was not to die. The church bought into the lie that, that John was not going to die until Jesus returned. And it was shared in a small group. It was shared in the platform. It was shared among the church. And people began to believe it. They began to believe the lie. Perception is not reality. Gossip is not always true. There's a, an email that I got this week saying, be careful what you quote from the media today on the internet. Did you know that everything you read on the internet is not true? Let me say that again for some of you who are a little slow. Everything you read on the internet is not true. And there are things that, that sometimes are put on the internet that are lies. And they wind up in the pulpits and they wind up in Sunday schools and small groups and Bible studies and they are spoken as true and they're lies. And this is a lie that is beginning to, to work its way into the fabric of the church. And fellow brothers and sisters are believing it. They're putting their hope in it that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming so soon that John is not going to die. Praise God. That is, no matter how much we suffer, Jesus is coming soon. But John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to make a, is, is to stop this lie. Notice it stops here with John. He says, that's not what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus said. He's putting this falsehood, this teaching to the end in the church. And there are many things today that are being spoken in the church as if they were words of Jesus, and they are not words of Jesus. And I'm convinced that we are living in a day where the apostate church is going to be on the rise. It's going to be on the rise. I was talking with someone this weekend about this similar subject, and we were talking about how some churches sometimes are not telling the truth about certain things, and how some are changing the truth in order to accommodate what they have built up. Because, you see, we live in an era where we are pushed with numbers today, where the, the idea to protect what we have built is, 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 is a, a, a strong temptation among pastors. And we have a tendency, if we're not careful, not to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth to help us God in order to protect what we have built rather than what... And I, I told her, I said, I think, in my personal opinion, I think that we are going to see churches today who are Bible-believing, gospel-centric, morally, biblically correct, are going to be on the decrease, not on the increase. We are coming into an era where biblically Christ-centered, gospel-centric churches, Bible-believing churches are going to be diminishing, not growing. Because our culture is rapidly heading into a place that's going to make it virtually difficult for a church to grow today and be politically correct to the place where it embraces all things that the world says we must embrace.
And because of that, there are many who are saying that Jesus said this when in reality he did not. And these lies and the untruths are beginning to spread. And people are putting their hopes in those things. They are staking their lives on these things. And I'm convinced that one of these days, they're going to find that they have bought into a lie. A famous preacher once told us a story many, many years ago about a guy he knew that was telling a story that he died and he went to hell. And uh, he was in hell and he was standing there and he could see the flames of hell and they were, you know, they were going. He was just standing there kind of looking out. And, and while he was standing there looking, he could see a guy who was standing on the flames, walking around in the flames of hell, and he was picking up people by the head of the hair and dropping them down. He'd come up and pick another one up, drop it there, and come here, pick another one, drop another head. And he finally said, Hey! And the guy said, What? He said, What are you doing? He said, I'm looking for the person who told me I wouldn't be in this place. That's sad. We need to be really careful today with truth that we say is truth to make sure that we who are students of the Bible and teachers of the Word of God are accurate in our interpretation, understanding that that when we stand and say, thus saith the Lord, that's what the Lord said. Because we'll be held accountable for what we say, thus saith the Lord. And there'll be a day in which we'll stand before God accountable for that. But I'm convinced also, if we're not careful and we spread untruth, if we say Jesus said what he did not say, we, will, we, will, we have the, the eternal destiny of people in our hands by, by, by what we say. And there are many, many, many today who have bought into the lies of many who have said, thus saith the Lord, when in fact they are not true. And John, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows how dangerous that is because what if he were to die and Jesus had not returned? What would that do to their faith? John's aware of that. People are believing that John's not going to die until Jesus returns. What if he were to die and he does die and Jesus doesn't return? What would that do to the faith of those young believers, those other believers that had put their faith in that untruth, that lie, where they believed John was going to be alive when Jesus returned? That would shake the foundation of their faith and cause many to stray. And John wanted to correct the untruth. So under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he did exactly that. So let's, let's have five things I want to talk about as we close. How do I combat comparing? We all do it, me included. We all compare. Number one, stay focused on Jesus. It's important that we stay focused on Jesus. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus and nobody else. You start looking at your brother or your sister or someone else and start comparing your life and their life and what's happening in your life and what's happening in their life, what's not happening in your life, what's happening in their life, or what is happening in your life and it's not happening in their life, you begin to look around and you can, you're on a slippery slope. So stay focused on Jesus. Number two, settle my value with Jesus. Settle your value with Jesus. God doesn't love me any more than he loves you. He loves us all the same. For God so loved the world that he gave his one only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. What is happening to you isn't because he doesn't love you. It's not. And life, at times, as you evaluate it in, in terms of what's happening in the world or in, in other people's lives, you may think, God, this is not fair. You must not love me as much as you love him. That's not true. He loves you the same amount that he loves me and everyone else in here and even those who don't love him. 
Because he loved us before we loved him, and he sent his son to die on a cross even before we loved him. So his love for you has never changed. It will never change. And so because of what does or doesn't happen to us, it isn't because we don't have value to him, we don't have worth to him, or that he doesn't love us. He does. And so settle that. And don't put into question his love for you when something happens that, that, that's, that's painful or Hurtful or difficult or trying or troublesome or testing. Number three, secure lasting forgiveness. Don't, don't keep your sins out here and say, well, this has happened to me because of what I've done this and this and this and then, then this. Now, there are consequences to decisions that we make, but God isn't, isn't some angry guy out there who just... And if, if your concept of God is like that, you need to read the New Testament and the Old Testament. And forgive yourself. John, I think, had a hard, was having a hard time forgiving himself. And Satan was taking advantage of that. And self was taking advantage of that. And causing him to look at others and compromising. Especially when his, his love for Jesus was put into question. I don't think John loved Jesus any more than Simon Peter did. John, John betrayed Jesus just like Simon Peter. He ran like a coward when Jesus was arrested and hid in the upper room. He, he was no different than Simon Peter. Yet Simon Peter, because of his, his own blindness that was brought about by his own lack of forgiveness, he couldn't see the humanity of John. And that's reality. And sometimes we have a tendency to compare ourselves. You don't know what's going on in their secret hearts, in their secret places, in their mind, in their lives, and what they're going through. Unless you walk in their shoes and in their lives, and, and you're a Holy Spirit, and you're, you don't know what's going on in their lives. People often don't, don't broadcast what's going on. And I'm convinced we all carry heartaches and pains and discomforts and, and trials and tests and tribulations that we often don't share. And so just because we don't see and don't know doesn't mean they too aren't having some sort of struggle. And number four, stop comparisons. Just stop it. It's none of your business what's happening in somebody else's life. You don't really know. You're looking at it from a human perspective with human eyes, not well, a human perspective with human eyes, and you're not, you're not aware of what's going on. Only God has those kind of, that kind of vision, that kind of perspective. So stop comparing because he loves you and he cares about you and has a wonderful plan and a wonderful purpose for your life, and he's orchestrating and putting all the pieces of the puzzle together so that, that, that as he places those pieces in your life, you'll become the beautiful creation that he wants you to be. And lastly, surrender to God's will, whatever it is. Embrace it. Obey him in blessing and in death. Give him glory and be the witness that he's called you to be. So as we close, let me ask you to just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment across the auditorium. I'm going to ask that no one move around for just a minute. Every head bowed and every eye closed for a second. Let me ask you to think about where you are in the subject of comparisons. We all do it. And that includes you and includes me. We all do it. Will you promise today, commit today, make a decision today with his help? You'll stop comparing. Will you do it?
When you're tempted to do that, would you say, Lord, I want you to convict me the moment I do that. Help me realize how wrong that is. And give me the strength to look back and to focus and see only you. In this time of invitation, it's the time for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith, the only hope that we have. And he is the only one who is perfect. And yet in his perfect state, he prayed, Lord, are you sure you want me to to go to the cross? And he surrendered to God's will. Are you surrendering to God's will in your life today? Or do you continue to push against it, resist it, reject it, and fight God? When today, like Simon Peter, you say, Lord, your will be done. Your glory become a reality in my circumstance, in my trial, in my difficulty, in my life. I will follow you. As you look to Jesus this morning, have you made that commitment to follow him? Have you been willing to take up your cross and follow him? Have you placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? That's the initial commitment. Until you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus and invite him into your life to be in control and to yield to him that control you'll not know the peace and the joy and the strength and the fulfillment that comes to a life completely turned over to Jesus do you need to make that decision today another time another place have you made that decision public we invite you to come but what decision is God leading you to make this morning we stand and sing in a moment we'll say yes to that that invitation 